Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 170 of The Bowery Boys, The Life and Death of Rudolph Valentino. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code BOWERY. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Tom, welcome back to New York and to the the recording studio. Thank you. I love what you've done with it here. But seriously, thank you um, to our listeners who reached out and shared their well wishes. And thank you to you, Greg, for making the trek all the way over to France to be part of the wedding. Oh, it was my pleasure. And where did you go for your honeymoon? We went down to Greece. We spent a week on the island of Crete and in Athens running around tracing some really old history. Wow, the basket of ancient civilization there. Right there. Well, in this show, we're going to do something a little bit more recent, say the Jazz Age. So get your great Gatsby attire on. However, leave the cork in the champagne. For in this show, we're going to revisit the glamorous life and the tragic death of film star Rudolph Valentino. Although he would live only for 31 years, during his career, he would become a new kind of leading man in Hollywood and really become one of the first male sex symbols in the industry. We're going to look at Valentino's early years in New York, and in that, bringing stories of New York nightlife and entertainment from the 1910s and 1920s. But then at the end of our story, we're going to look at a sudden demise and really one of the craziest events in American pop culture history for when he passed away on August 23rd, 1926, it created a bit of a hysteria on the New York City streets. So tickets, please, as we go behind the screen of the life and death of Rudolph Valentino. Stars may come and stars may go Up there in that starry space But when one falls God always calls a star to take its place There's a new star in heaven tonight that will never fade from our sight. There's a new star at home in that far starry dome, shining down on his loved ones tonight. There's a voice singing, lead kindly light, with a smile that has made the world bright. Valentino, goodbye, but way up in the sky, there's a new star in heaven tonight. So Tom, that unusual song that we just heard was called There's a New Star in Heaven Tonight. And it was performed by early country music crooner Vernon Dalhart. It was recorded four days after the death of Rudolph Valentino. It's kind of like the candle in the wind of the whole Valentino tragedy. So let's get started with being introduced to young Rudolph as a kid. You mean young Rudolfo. Rudolfo. Rudolfo Alfonso Raffaello Pierre Philbert Guglielmi de Valentina. That's beautifully done. Sorry, I wasn't finished. D'Antongolia. <laughs> we'll call him Rudy. Yes, Rudy, who was born on May 6th. 1895, in the southern Italian town of Castellaneta. His is not the typical immigrant to the U.S. rags-to-riches story. Um, It's more of a 
riches to rags to riches to rags to riches to rags story. It would sort of, you know, yo-yo around. He grew up in very comfortable circumstances. He had an older brother named Alberto and a younger sister named Maria. They were sort of the good kids. They attended school and took things seriously. Young Rudolfo, however, was a bit more precocious, and Mm -hmm. he just had no real concern for schooling. He didn't want to be there. Had a wanderlust, if you will. Yeah, and a lot of energy. 17 years old, not doing much, and he would just kind of hang around. So he did what anybody would do in that situation. He headed off for Paris to find adventure. It sounds like he spent a lot of money, wasted a lot of his family's money. You mean in Paris? Because this was a frequent occurrence for him. (laughs) Yes, anywhere, yeah. He was very good at living, uh, a sort of (laughs) bon vivant. He danced many dances. He was quite good at dancing at this point, learning in the cabarets and the dancing halls with girls from both high and low society, whining and dining them and blowing through his money. So he returned home to mom completely broke with debts. And that's when he decided, after talking to some friends, that maybe the answer hadn't been Paris in the first place. The answer was New York City. After all, you know, there were just thousands of people from Italy going every year immigrating to the U.S., People of lesser means from his area of Italy went there and were quite successful. So try to follow in their footsteps, perhaps. And that's, I think, an interesting point in his story is that so many of the other people from Italy who would go, in fact, in 1913, I know this sounds incredible, but there were 265,000 Italians who moved, who emigrated to the U.S. in 1913 alone. I double-checked wow. that. It didn't, even, it didn't seem possible that there were so many. So many of those people have the story that we know about, right? Leaving behind poverty, leaving behind problems. Rudy was leaving behind gambling debts, you know, some like <laughs> not as a glamorous dance yeah. shoes. So he sailed over in mid-December of 1913, 101 years ago. Now, this was Rudolfo, and he had expensive tastes. He wasn't coming penniless. He was, in fact, coming with a $4,000 wire transfer that he could use to set up in a, a bank account as soon as he got here. That $4,000, <laughs> just to put it in today's uh-huh. terms, is like $95,000 in 2014. So he's arriving with $100,000, you know, to get started in New York City. We were certainly neither of us so lucky. (laughs) No. And also he had aunts and uncles that lived in the city, although I believe he tried to avoid them. Well, and as soon as he got on the ship, he got into his second class cabin and looked around and he found out that up in first class, they were having champagne before meals and there was all kinds of dancing going on. And he looked around at his prospects and thought... Do I want to spend the next two weeks socializing with second-class passengers, or do I want to get a fresh start in New York City and already start in first class? This was his theory of upward mobility, was that you dress the part that you want to achieve. Mingle with the people that you want to eventually be your peers. And so he figured out how to mingle with them. He cashed in part of this wire transfer, part of this account that he was going to set up, and upgraded to first class. So he spent the next two weeks uh, drinking champagne and playing shuffleboard with society folk and dancing, (laughs) dancing across the Atlantic. But arriving in New York with considerably less money. So how do you make a living when he arrived? Well, I don't think making a living was at the top of his priorities. It, he, was, he was more concerned with living when he got here. Okay. He checked into a good hotel. He was eating at expensive restaurants. If you're 17 years old and you've got $100,000 in the bank and you arrive in New York and you're carousing, you're going to find friends. And he spoke Italian and French, but little English. That's right. But there were lots of people who spoke Italian and French in the city. Obviously, his lifestyle didn't last long, and he suddenly was facing financial, real financial difficulties. But his fortunes changed because of dancing, correct? Throughout his $4,000 spree around town, he was dancing up a storm. And in doing so, vastly improved his dancing skills, which allowed him to get a job dancing at various dance parlors, dance halls. This was the 
pre-World War One dance craze. And the tango, in particular, was sweeping the nation because it was a very tactile, physical dance, and thus scandalous for the 1910s. One of the places he got a job dancing was at Maxim's, which was a cabaret, fabulous, over-the-top. It was, you know, pink and frou-frou, and waiters were dressed up like French aristocrats with powdered wigs and such. And there was a full <laughs> band that was sort of lit by rose-colored lights and a, a dance floor, a circular dance floor that turned. Probably very typical of the Lobster Palace scene of Times Square, right. for instance. And right. the Lobster Palaces also had dance floors mm-hmm. that rotated, and they also employed dancers. Employed dancers, like Rudolfo, because women sometimes needed a dance partner. Either they came with their husband or their date who didn't want to dance or didn't know the latest dance, and so they could dance with one of these paid male dancers called a taxi dancer, mm-hmm. or women were going out, starting to go out on their own uh, to things called tea dances. And these were <laughs> afternoon dances Mm -hmm. that were held on weekdays at like 4 p.m. when husbands were off working. Well, yeah, I guess instead of having tea, you get up and you cut a rug. With a handsome Southern Italian boy (laughs) like Rudolfo. These obviously were frowned upon by the press, by shocked society folk who thought that dancing was already a sin, dancing during the day was a sin, dancing with strangers, paid male dancers, was really a sin. And on top of it, Rudolfo was making a little extra money by giving private dance lessons upstairs, which had a sort of insinuation Mm. that maybe there was a little bit more than dancing going on. And there may have been. This dance gig also put him in touch with more society folk, such as Blanca de Sals, who is not a contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race, but instead... Bianca de Sals. Blanca. Blanca Blanca de Sals, who is a Chilean heiress who was unhappily married to an American tycoon named John de Sals. Unfortunately for Blanca, John was also in a very open affair with other women. So Rudolfo, he felt very sorry for Blanca. And he latched on to the Chilean princess? He he befriended her and then supported her during her subsequent divorce trial against John. And he supported her to the point of giving testimony against John and even against his own partner, saying that he himself had witnessed John having an affair. Blanca won the trial But John was so upset and sort of like agog that this recently arrived Italian immigrant who was a taxi dancer was sullying his name like this. And of course, this was all reported in the press. So John looked for a way to get revenge. So did he frame him? Did he set him up in some way? I mean, this sounds like a plot from a movie that he would later star in. That's That's the crazy thing about this story. I guess that's what (laughs) happens if you're like a dashing guy who's dancing for a living with these Chilean heiresses. (laughs) Apologies to any Chilean heiresses out there. We don't mean to uh, And we have a lot of them listening, Greg. (laughs) A lot listening to the show. A couple weeks later, in September of 1916, Rudolfo happened to be at a house of ill repute that was run by a certain Mrs. Georgia Time. He happened to be in there on September 5th, 1916, when the police's vice squad raided the place. They had been tipped off by an anonymous businessman who claimed to have been cheated out of some money at this house of ill repute. Do we know under what circumstances he was at this ill-reputed house? We don't know what he was doing. We don't know what he's reputedly (laughs) reputed to have been doing. All we know is that Georgia and Rudolfo were taken into custody. He was sent down to the tombs where he spent a couple days. The famous tombs prison down the old Five Points neighborhood. And then went on trial where the Tribune described Rodolfo as, quote, a bogus count or marquis <laughs> and a, a, quote, handsome fellow about 20 years old who wears corsets and a wristwatch. <laughs> Both, that paints quite a picture. <laughs> yes, Rudolfo in a corset, I'm sure, was actually a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. But And the wristwatch, this was an obvious slander on his masculinity because wristwatches were seen as jewelry and as very anti-masculine. 
the, the point for his career was that nobody wanted to dance with him in any kind of exhibition. Just when he thought that the story was dying out the next summer, August of 1917, remember Blanca? Mm-hmm. Well, there was a custody battle with the Hand of Sun. He allegedly hadn't returned the Sun to her at the designated time or whatever, so she drove out to his Long Island estate, approached him on the front porch, and shot him in the head five times. Well, obviously he needs to escape town now. He needed to get a fresh start, and it wasn't going to happen in New York. So he decided to get out of town any way he could. And that meant Hollywood. So in 1917, Valentino headed to Los Angeles and eventually to the film industry, the very, very young and burgeoning film industry here. He got a few jobs in very small bit parts. This is how we all get started in the film industry, Tom. And being silent films, that thick Italian accent was no hindrance. But many claim that he looked too exotic too foreign looking, and then he would never really make it that far in the films. Now, and let's not forget, Valentino has olive skin and looks Southern Italian. Yeah, he picked up dancing again to make a little extra money, you know, on the dance floor, mingling with the fringes of uh, this brand new glitterati of these new film stars. I mean, they hadn't existed 10 years ago, and now right. here we were in Hollywood, and it was like a new breed, a new animal. Finally, in March of 1921, got its big breakout role in a film called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, making $350 a week, which doesn't sound like all that much and actually wasn't for the kind of role he had in the movie. But it was an international epic based on a Spanish book about World War I. He played Julio, a tango dancing heir turned war hero. It was a smash when it debuted in New York at the Lyric Theater um, on 43rd Street. But the movie studio he worked for at that time, Metro Pictures, they refused to give him a raise. They didn't value him. We, can, we now know, you know, retroactively we can say that. So he went over to the rival movie studio, Famous Players, the Lasky Corporation. There's two reasons why this is important for our story. In 1920, the Famous Players opened a movie studio in Astoria, Queens. So they actually had studios in both New York and Los Angeles. This would periodically bring Valentino back to New York over his career, and to, into Queens specifically, but I'll get to that in a second. The second reason this is important, because Jesse Lasky, the head of the studio, put Valentino in the movie that would make his name, The Sheik, which was released in October of 1921. A blurb from a local paper described it, quote, a photo play of tempestuous love between an English beauty and a bronzed Arab chief. You know, a romantic adventure on the Arabian sands. Of course, most Americans had no idea what a sheik even was. They didn't even know how to pronounce it. One of the posters actually said the line, Shriek, for the sheik will seek you too. And it probably involved an unnuanced uh, performance <laughs> as well, I'm, I'm assuming. To say, needless to say, it was a huge focus on his face and on his eyes, and not so much on the subtlety of performance that we appreciate today when we watch a screen debut. He soon became and so soon considered the hottest star in Hollywood, and basically played quite a number of nationalities. They weren't very specific back then. Right, because if you had olive skin, you could be any number of nationalities. <laughs> that was the thought back then. Uh, he instantly became so popular, thousands of fan letters. The way I look at it, he became a star for two major reasons. First was the vehicle in which he was in, which was the feature-length film. They had been around for less than 10 years. You know, back in 1912, for instance, all of the movies were shorts. They were usually no longer than 20 minutes. Just imagine seeing this face on a large screen for a protracted period of time. It must have seemed almost godlike or even immortal to a few. But we're also talking about, we're now tripping into the 1920s here, where there are shifting attitudes on sex. People are more prone to embrace romantic and sexual attributes of a star. And you could also share your love of that star with people all across the country. It wasn't just confined to a theater star. There was an entire industry that was propagating this with magazines like Photoplay. Which, of course, would mean that people would imitate the styles of the star. And so they would start to affect fashion. Women would desire that slicked back hair. Men would shave their chests. I'm curious about the chest shaving, but I want to go back to the slick back hair. Mm -hmm. The women desired that in men, slick back hair. Yes, yes. And in fact, 
the men were referred to, those who, who did sort of put the pomade back and push their hair back as Vaselinos. <laughs> I wouldn't go around dropping that word today, but I've, I sometimes do that. The Valentino, the Vaselino. You put Vaseline in your hair? <laughs> no. We have... <laughs> We have improved products for that. One time after he came back from a European trip and got off the boat at Chelsea Pier, he was wearing on his face, he had a beard. He had grown a beard out for a promotion of a film. People were so scandalized that the Master Barbers Association, like an association... Mm. of barbers, sent him a letter saying, quote, such a fashion as a beard will not only cause injury to barbers, it will utterly deface our country and make American citizens difficult to distinguish from Russians. Who, I guess, were all bearded. <laughs> yes. So he's, he's so he's become something of an idol here through the early 1920s. But what of his personal life? Because I... I think by this point, he had already been married twice. Twice. Yes, uh, to tempestuous actresses. The, the first in 1919, Jean Acker, who he quickly got a divorce from, although not quick enough because he then married Natasha Rambova. Now, she sounds like an exotic Russian actress of some yes, kind. Yes, she must be, right? No, she, well, maybe she was a beard. Her real name was Winifred Shaughnessy from Utah. He married Rambova a little bit too soon after his divorce. and For his own good? Well, th- th- he actually broke laws in California. And when he got back from Mexico with his new bride, um, he was arrested for bigamy. Oh, so he literally had married her too quickly. <laughs> yes, too quickly. They got that straightened out, but that was a little bit of was, a scandal. Was he thrown in jail? Yes. That's how seriously they took this issue back then. Now, at the height of his fame in 1923, he actually went on strike against his movie studio. He was not allowed to act in for any other studios at this time, but he could reach out to the vaudeville stage. And in fact, that's what he did with the B.F. Keith circuit, the vaudeville circuit that traveled the United States with Natasha. As his partner, he performed on a road show, a dance road show that was sponsored by a product sponsored by Mineral Lava Beauty Clay. At each of these stops during the dancing, it would be a beauty pageant. They would elect a woman, I I assume was wearing the beauty clay at each of these stops. (laughs) And this tour would culminate in New York City at Madison Square Garden on November 23rd, 1923. Uh, And it was advertised as Rudolph Valentino and his 88 beauties. He returned to filmmaking in 1924. In Astoria, he made such films as Monsieur Beaucaire and The Sainted Devil. How did those movies do? He was losing a little bit of his luster at the time. This the this French frilly film, and in, in particular, was seen as a little bit too foppish. Was seen right. as a little bit too artsy for the mid nineteen twenties. Well, he did wear a powdered white wig during most of it, right? Except for those scenes where he was shirtless, and he was shirtless a lot in these movies oh. back then. What is this called again, Monsieur <laughs> Now, he, for a short time, actually lived in Bayside, Queens at 201 Cross Island Parkway. It was a summer home of his. Today, it's the house is still there. It's owned by the Park Service, and it's part of a golf course. Oh. Um, there's an Italian restaurant there. You should try it. But he was so popular that when news got out that he was working here in Astoria, the price of the rents and the hotels around the studio skyrocketed as hundreds of fans flocked to this area just to catch a glimpse of Rudolph during filming. But if you were an insider and wanted to catch Valentino, of course, you could just visit one of the speakeasies of Greenwich Village or one of the various hotel bars around Midtown Manhattan, for he was quite a party boy on top of it. Really? He would regularly go to an apartment on West 64th Street. In fact, this was where the aunt of his wife, Rambova, lived. And she was a spiritualist. This is the party that was happening on 64th Street, seances. Rambova would give Rudolph words of encouragement from members of his family beyond the grave and entities that trace themselves back to ancient Egypt. Mm. So now, he was. This is in line with the 1920s spiritualism <laughs> sure. and, and 
other movements that were happening that we discussed in one of our mm-hmm. ghost story podcasts. Now, we could continue to go down this rabbit hole of unusual celebrity behavior, of which, of which he exhibited quite a lot, but let's get to 1926. Okay, saying quickly that in 1925, Rambova herself decided to take a, quote, marital vacation <laughs> from her husband. So that's two wives down. He's single, yes. He's single again. But in February of 1926, he started shooting his last film, The Son of the Sheik, for United Artists. Now, Son of the Sheik was obviously a sequel to his 1921 huge hit, typical of all of these films. It tells a very melodramatic tale of the son of a powerful sheik. And the Sheik and the Son are both played by Valentino. So it's like a parent trap kind of thing? Yeah, or kind of a parent trap thing, except for he played the son and the father, mm. which was pretty cool. For 1926 standards, these were ingenious special effects that they employed to make him play both father and son. But this was going to be a movie that, being a sequel, that brought him back to that original height of fame. Right, and they the had original. a whole thing planned around it. July 9th, 1926. A huge opening in Hollywood, which was a big hit for the advanced screening. And then he took off for a a nationwide promotion. But unfortunately for him and for the timing of the whole thing, while he's on this tour, and remember, in this movie, he's playing this sort of macho chic Right, even though he's in billowy pants and and he's still just kind of beautiful in a slightly feminine way, even though he's swinging from chandeliers and he's jumping off balconies onto horses. So he's on his uh, national tour when an editorial appears in the Chicago Tribune on July 18th 1926. Now, the editorial basically deals with the problem of American men becoming too feminine. And the whole setup for it is that in a new public bathroom in Chicago was found a new dispensing machine that dispensed pink talcum powder. Okay? (laughs) That is unusual. We do actually find it kind of unusual, but remember that men were shellacking their hair. Yeah, yeah, of course. They were doing a number of things, and so cut to the middle of the editorial where the writer says, a powder vending machine in a men's washroom Homo Americanus. Why didn't someone (laughs) quietly drown Rudolph Guglielmo, alias Valentino, years ago? And they continue, It is time for a matriarchy. If the male of the species allows such things to persist, better a rule by masculine women than by effeminate men. Hollywood is the national school of masculinity. Rudy, the beautiful gardener's boy, is the prototype of the American male. Hell's bells. Oh, sugar. (laughs) Now, this was not just an offense to him, but this, plus, you know, if you add in all of the rumors about his sexuality during this period, this could possibly affect his career. This was actually kind of complicated, right? Because it's it's blaming him for a feminine turn taken by American men, supposedly, right? Masculinity was in danger somehow of fading out because of people like him, who, by the way, were also foreign. That's definitely a subtext here. Definitely the foreignness of him. Right. Today we talk about whether or not he was gay, if he had gay relationships. We don't really know. I mean, there are all kinds of speculative books that have come out that mention all kinds of ridiculous rumors and present them like they're fact. I was going to say, researching this show was actually quite difficult. I thought it was a little bit easier researching, like, Peter Stuyvesant. Mm. You know, there aren't whole books on Peter Stuyvesant speculating on his intimate life, where with Rudy, not only do you have people speculating, you also have a wall that was placed around him during his life uh, by the film studio, this sort of constructed biography. So what was his reaction to this editorial? So he didn't want to be blamed for pink powder in some men's room in Chicago. The son of the Sheik's press agent cooked up this idea to have Valentino challenge the writer of the editorial to a duel. A duel? <laughs> I I assume you don't mean with guns or even swords. Well, it turns out right. It's illegal to have a duel these days, if you, as you have covered yes, uh-huh. in previous shows. So they they sort of toned it down to at least a boxing match. 
Valentino did come to New York City and get boxing lessons from heavyweight champ Jack Dempsey himself. Oh, went right to the top. Who then told the press, Valentino's no sissy, believe me, he packs a pretty mean punch. So when he got to New York, he engaged in battle with the writer here, right? Well, no, because the, the, the writer was in Chicago and would stay there. However, a boxing reporter for the New York Evening Journal, a guy named Frank O'Neill, took up the offer... For the Chicago editorialist. So they arranged to have a boxing match on the roof of the Ambassador Hotel, which was at Park and 51st Street. Valentino got popped by the writer on his chin, which he followed by throwing a harder punch of his own to the reporter and knocked him down, kind of freaked out a little bit and helped the reporter up. But Valentino was declared the winner. And that was widely reported. So he's in New York, 1926. Right. Uh, uh, July. Per- July, preparing to promote Son of the Sheik here, yes. which was going to debut at the Strand Theater in Times Square. And in late July, did just that. The New York premiere drew huge crowds, people tearing at his clothes outside the theater. That was the end of July. And two weeks later, on August 15th, 1926, he would collapse in his room be taken by his friend and his manager, George Ullman, to the New York Polyclinic Hospital, where he was diagnosed as having gastric ulcers and appendicitis. They performed surgery on him, but after the surgery, he developed peritonitis, which things just kept spiraling out of control, getting worse. A week later, on August 21st, he developed pleurisy, which is an inflammation of the lungs, and things got dramatically worse. Some were speculating throughout this, you know, throughout this week that this was actually a publicity stunt that they were pulling to drum up more interest in this movie because it was so critical that this movie perform well. But no, in fact, he was extremely sick. And two days later, on August 23rd, he fell into a coma and died just a few hours later after uttering his last word, madre, mother. So this, I mean, this seems so sudden in our story. It seemed so sudden to America, to the world, where the greatest movie star that had ever lived up to that point had suddenly died, and people were shaken by this. How is it possible that this man, who was only 31 years old, and seemingly at the peak of his physical performance, could suddenly just be gone? Well, the second part of our story will deal with how New York coped with this, and spoiler alert, not very well. We'll get into those details after the commercial break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. 
Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now, back to the show. So he dies while curious crowds throng the streets before the hospital. And his last breath is drawn with a circle of hired men and women attendants, without one relative at his bedside, perhaps without a single man or woman who loved him for himself. Now, that was a quote from the Newark News on the day after he died. Outside of the hospital, of course, there were 10,000 fans holding an all-night vigil. I'm going to turn our attention now, Tom, to a rather macabre tourist attraction. Uh, For those who are in the gothic scene, you may like to visit this place, Frank Campbell's Funeral Home. It is perhaps the most famous funeral home in the world. It was opened in 1898. Frank Campbell, by the way, many attribute him to inventing the funeral chapel itself, many of the American funeral customs, because it was separate from a church. It's not a church. It's a privately owned business that has the veneer of a church. You could refit it for any religion or personal taste. Today, it's at Madison and 81st Street. But at the time of Valentino's passing, it was at Broadway and 66th. Now, do you know what Broadway and 66th sounds like? The area that would become Lincoln Center. Right. So the northern end of the Lincoln Center Plaza, there's a Century 21. It's across from the Apple Store. Yeah, that's depressing to say. But yes, around that area. Frank Campbell's, by the way, would go on to handle the final arrangements for the biggest stars in the world and still does today. Judy Garland, Jackie Onassis, Irving Berlin, even to Biggie Smalls, Heath Ledger, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Now, New York is prone to flagrant drama at the occasion of a death of a major star. This is a city of entertainment and entertainment venues, after all. The great opera star Enrico Caruso, when he died in 1921, There were tributes and memorials that erupted throughout all of New York City for weeks. But what I'm about to describe... There were also, just to add, there were also lots of recently arrived immigrants, many of whom were bringing their own funeral customs Mm -hmm. with them, and many coming from places where they did this more frequently, demonstrating in the streets. But what I'm about to describe here is totally bonkers. Okay, New Yorkers freaked out at the news of Valentino's demise. From the New York Times the following day, quote, Statesmen and men of science, great teachers and men who have swayed the masses through the spoken and written word, have been stricken and died with far less public notice than Rudolph Valentino. Now, because he died around noon... They were able to announce this at movie theater, so they interrupted the film to tell people that cinema's greatest star had just passed away. Press coverage of his death trumped all world events at this time. One newspaper blared the headline, quote, Greatest lover in history of moving pictures loses his battle with death. Just drama dripping from every publication. There were unfortunately reports of suicides of fans at this time. People who are obviously fraught with sadness, who took their own life or attempted to. But the news of this, even Valentino's doctor at the Polyclinic Hospital collapsed from illness. Valentino's body was transported up to Frank Campbell's up here at Broadway in 66 where people could pay respect in their gold room. He was, he was kept in a silver coffin and laid upon a bed of black silk. On August 24th, alone on that day, more than 30,000 people tried to get a two-second glimpse of the body of Rudolph Valentino. As a result, the police were wholly unable to control the situation for several hours. Also, rather, this was this event was without precedent in New York, and that largely the crowds were made up of women and girls. Broadway was actually closed to traffic. There were shoes and articles of clothing strewn throughout the streets and on the sidewalks. It seemed like every five minutes there was a woman who fainted and fell and had to be escorted into the funeral home. 
on that particular day, there were more than 100 people injured. The plate glass window of the funeral home was actually smashed in, and people spilled into the building just to try to get a glimpse of Valentino's body. They had to actually close it at midnight and push people back. At a certain point, I'm not exactly sure when this happened, but men in black shirts claiming to be from the fascist League of North America came in to guard the body. They were purportedly sent by Benito Mussolini and uh, stood watch over the body. Purportedly. Had they been? That seems kind of far-fetched. No. Later, Mussolini would actually send a telegram denying that he had sent these men. And they did need guards because some of the people were so in grief that they ran towards the body to try to cut off a lock of hair. Oh. More than 100,000 people were lined up in dour weather for hours to get a glimpse of the body. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. Why was it so insane? Like, why was this even permitted? Permitted. Well, the key is something that you had said earlier about a movie that was about to open. Son of the Sheik. The son of right? which he had been promoting. So, which had already opened in New York, but not in the rest of the country. Right. So it was rolling out at that very time. The star of the movie had died. So not only did the film studio have PR people, but Frank Campbell's funeral home also had a PR organization that wanted to monopolize on this particular situation. Allegedly, people from the local taverns around this neighborhood were hired to cause a commotion out front, in front of Frank Campbell's, to get them all to worked To stir up. them up? Yes. I mean, little did they know how successful that would be. The, the funeral home, allegedly, even hired people to faint out front and to get into fights, at least at the beginning, just to get, like, to get the ball rolling, I guess, um, hoping that they would inspire others to emulate this behavior for headlines. I even read one source that said janitors actually went out in the street and threw garbage cans. <laughs> Which... Creating business for themselves. But they hired people to faint. And they were the ones that hired these quote-unquote fascist guards that were around the coffin. Well, I suppose, you know, the film studio didn't know how the film would perform because they had never had a leading man like Valentino and they'd never had one die right before a huge film came out. And he had a lot of debt at this point. He was severely indebted financially and was banking on this film to get himself out. There was a lot of motivation to get people into the movie theaters. Newspapers, of course, sensing the public interest, published stories for days, pushed actual news off the front page without oh, you land can't imagine that happening today <laughs> no uh, the New York Evening Graphic for instance one day published an issue with a front page photo which was a photo illustration of Valentino entering heaven and meeting Enrico Caruso and watching as scores of people scurried up through the pearly gates back in the days before Photoshop but the grand finale of course was yet to arrive I believe you're talking about Pola Negri. His, uh, his attractive and dramatic co-star. Yes, she was a Polish-born actress, a leading lady in femme fatale and silent movies. She had been a big star in Berlin, in films that had been directed by the great Ernst Lubitsch. So anyway, Pola came to Hollywood in 1922 and was a huge star and a trendsetter and very successful she had high-profile affairs with other major stars like Charlie Chaplin and then Rudolph Valentino. Something always seems a bit fake about her, though. Well, right? like her vampy style or her... <laughs> are you talking about her acting or her personality in general? Pretty much all of it. She's someone who lives on the surface. And had been very successful at that and was one of the top divas acting in movies at this, at this time. Well... She arrived from California on August 29th, exhausted. Well, I'll, I'll read from the New York Times on August 29th. They said, Pola Negri will arrive on the 20th century, the train, this morning. It was announced by Mr. Ullman, who was his business manager. She reached Chicago yesterday, and it was reported that she was overcome by grief. Why are people tracing her steps to, to New York? Well... There was more to the story, as the paper explained the next day when they wrote, She had knelt in prayer for 15 minutes at his coffin. 
before collapsing in a faint into the arms of Mrs. George Ullman. It was half an hour before Mrs. Ullman and a nurse revived the actress sufficiently for her to speak of her attachment for Valentino. So once she did, once she was revived, she announced that yes, in fact, she had been engaged to Valentino. She was going to become the third Mrs. Valentino. Again, the New York Times, quote, She swooned again and was taken in a taxi cab back to the hotel ambassador, too much overcome by her grief and the exertion of a 3,000-mile trip across the continent to elaborate on her brief interview. So then she leaves, but George Ullman, who's, who was Valentino's manager, proceeded to take questions about her to the crowd as well. So this became a spectacle about Pola. All of a sudden it became the Pola Negri show. Right. Because she kept fainting almost on cue every time she had to come out and speak to the press. And there are several different accounts, depending on who you read on the accounts of Rudolph Valentino's funeral, that explain that she also spent... I've seen $2,000 on blood red roses uh, to be presented next to his coffin or draped over his coffin that spelled out her name, Pola, (laughs) which is, it seems like a decadent display of bad taste. So on August 30th, they finally had a memorial service and they took his body down, of course, with like a procession with thousands of people lining the streets down to St. Malachy's Catholic Church a.k.a. the Actors' Chapel, which is on West 49th Street off of Times Square. And some of the pallbearers included top screen stars of the time, like Douglas Fairbanks and other bigwigs in Hollywood, like Adolph Zucker and Marcus Lowe. And in the audience were actresses like Mary Pickford, Gloria Swanson, Marilyn Miller, all of whom seemed to have fainting fits. Well, I'm sure you would have fainted, too, had you been invited into St. Malachy's Chapel, which sensibly, was only open to family and friends of Valentino. And after the memorial service, they actually took the body back up with yet another procession um, up a different avenue, back up to Frank Campbell's. And then they took the body across the country for a second funeral in Hollywood. Now, interestingly, he didn't have any arrangements for a funeral because he he hadn't planned for that. He was 31 years old. So his friend and writer of many of his films, June Mathis, offered up a spot that she had secured for her husband, whom she had divorced in the meantime. So she had a free slot open up in the family crypt, which was in the Hollywood Memorial Park Cemetery, which is today's Hollywood Forever. Last year, Tom and I, we were in L.A. together. We stopped at Hollywood Forever and visited his crypt, although there's a lot of, I mean, it's a cemetery almost entirely comprised of entertainers. Right, so it's, it's even easy to overlook Valentino. So, so look out for him. So the procession, Greg, you can watch today. You can watch, you know, film clips and newsreels that cover this. You can watch it today. You can see that procession coming down from Frank Campbell's to St. Malachy's on a number of different newsreels. Now, there were, of course, no surprise given the unexpectedness of his death and all the press attention that was given to it, that there would be a lot of rumors, Mm. a lot of speculation about his death. Some of those rumors included alcohol poisoning. A few days earlier, he had gone to a party in the Upper East Side. You know, this is the days of speakeasies and bathtub gin. So many believe that he might have drank something that, let's just say, didn't agree with him. Others say that he was shot by a jealous lover and had been covered up. It was a bullet wound that had killed him. Many said the jealous husbands fed him broken glass or perhaps slipped him a little arsenic. Broken glass? There was a big theory that he had died of aluminum poisoning. Pola herself speculated that he might have been poisoned by experimental hair tonic because he was going bald and he was using unusual experimental products to thicken his hair. Not to mention that pink powder. (laughs) And some said, well, he's not even dead at all. What had actually happened is his face had been horribly scarred in an acid accident. Someone had thrown acid in his face. Again, one of these jealous lovers. And that the body that was actually at Frank Campbell's had been a waxen figure borrowed from a wax museum. 
But these are silly, <laughs> silly theories that were easily debunked, right? Because well, we have medical records. Well, we there is some room for doubt here. And I think that that's why there are so many theories that even today fly around, um, many of which sound a little plausible, actually. Well, I guess if the funeral home was, you know, hiring <laughs> maidens yeah. to faint out in the street, that, yeah, all kinds of shenanigans could have been possible. But back in 1926, those who did think he was dead did not let that be an impediment to conversation. For years afterwards, mediums spoke to him through Ouija boards and through seances. In fact, Natasha Rambova wrote a whole book and had a chapter about of all the things that Rudolph told her from beyond the grave. Every year on his death at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, they would have these yearly Valentino memorials that throughout the years would become more and more populated with mediums and and professed clairvoyants who all claim to have messages of Valentino's. You also may know of the famous Lady in Black who comes every year and sets a single red rose on his grave or near his grave. Now, he certainly lives on in New York City, however, at least to me. If you want to get your dosage of old Hollywood screen glamour, head out to Astoria to the old famous Lasky studio today called the Kaufman Astoria Studios. Now, there is a famous photo, which I will put on the blog, from his French fancy flop film. Monsieur Beaucaire. Yes. And having a meal in the commissary in the basement of uh, the studio. Now, today, that is... Although the studio is still a working studio, it's where they make Sesame Street. And Orange is the New Black. And Nurse Jackie. And Nurse Jackie. The basement is actually turned into a restaurant called the Astor Room. Now, just this past weekend, Tom, I just happened to dine at this restaurant and was coincidentally sat in the very same spot that this photo was taken, where Valentino sat for this photo. Now, are you sure that was a coincidence? (laughs) Was it Valentino himself who set you at that table? Well, I wasn't dressed in any flamboyant French finery. I was only in my, you know, Brooklyn bum clothes. But perhaps that was Valentino guiding our story tonight as we recount the story of his glamorous life and unusual death. On our blog, com, I'll have many pictures of the striking Valentino and some of his work in New York City and some of these incredible photographs of the throngs of people who were gathered outside the funeral home. You can also join us on Facebook and on Twitter at Bowery Boys and follow Greg on Instagram. And so we're at the end of our show and thus I will faint away until... I fainted five minutes ago. You you didn't even notice. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio... And producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.